Okay, page 1079 from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now that the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to look at your word, and I pray that um, as, we are, as we come to this, uh, your text, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts in, in, in a worshipful way to be able to, to see and know all that you want us to hear this morning. I pray that everything that I say would be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So when we first moved here, I realized that there was a topic that everyone seemed to have a response to. In fact, when I would bring this up, people would give me a smile or they would give me a frown. Uh, And sometimes I would be talking with somebody about this topic. And 
another person who wasn't in the conversation would come in and say, oh, let me tell you what I think about that. Everyone had a response to it. What could be so polarizing? What could be such... What, could, what topic could get people to automatically have a response to it? You ready for this? I'm going to put, this, put, put the picture on the screen. Marmite. I hate it. I love it. I wish everyone would eat it with me. How could anyone eat that? It's just like Vegemite. It's nothing like Vegemite. And I realize that it is such a polarizing thing around here. Everyone had a response to it. We've been going through this series on John. You can take that off. We've been going through this series on John, and everybody in John has a response to Jesus. Whether they wanted to follow him, whether they wanted to kill him, or whether they weren't sure what to think of Jesus, they all had a response to Jesus. And in our gospel, John is very clear about what he wants us to, how he wants us to respond, us, the reader of John. So turn with me, and keep your finger in John 12, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John 20, verse 30. And here, John tells us why he's writing to us. And this is what John says. John is one of the 12 disciples. John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to say, I'm going to just read that last part again. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John has a very specific response that he wants you and I to have for Jesus. And that's to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is a word for this person that the, that the Jewish people had been waiting for for many years. And that there were there prophecies that promised that there would be a, a a figure who would come in the line of the kings, in the line of David. And that figure, the Messiah, or the Christ, would come and rescue the people from oppression, would save the people from their afflictions. And so there was this Jewish hope that there would be a figure who comes, who would save them. And so John is saying, this is what, how I want you to respond to this. This is, this is the case that I'm making in this gospel, that you would believe that Jesus, this Jesus that we, I've been writing about, is that Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life. And so, John, we can divide John into two halves, two halves. So the first, the first half would be what many people call the book of signs. And so we see over and over again, Jesus is performing miracles and doing things that point to him being the Messiah. He's turning water into wine. He's, he's, he is uh, feeding the 5,000, and he's teaching people. And all of this is pointing to Jesus saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the one that's going to rescue you. And the second half of John, many people call the book of Passion. 
the passion of Jesus, where Jesus is going to his death. He's arrested, he's tortured, he's nailed to a cross, he dies, he's buried, and the third day he rises again. And so we have, we have these two halves in John and, John, and John moves us towards the second half of John. And the passage we were looking at this morning kind of falls into that hinge between the first half and the second half. It's kind of the transition between the two halves. And as we look at our passage, I want us to understand what has just happened. What has just happened in the narrative that John has given us. In chapter 11, we were still at the book of signs. And the most dramatic sign is Jesus taking a dead man and raising him back to life. He was dead. They had put him into the tomb for several days. His name is Lazarus. And Jesus raised him from the dead. Now this is telling people that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. We have a prophecy in Daniel chapter 12 that when the Messiah comes, that many people would be raised from the dead. And so Jesus is saying to everyone, I'm the one. I'm the one who has able to do this. Follow me. And so people were following him. People were curious about this man who was raising, who had raised this man from the dead. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, got together. They had a meeting. And they said, what do we do? This man is getting many followers. And if more people follow him, the Romans are going to think that this is a threat. And so we need to stop Jesus because people are following him. And that's going to take away our nation. That's going to take away the way of life that the Romans have given us. And so they plotted. They made a conspiracy to have Jesus arrested and put to death. And that leads us to our passage this morning. We are in Bethany, and that's where Lazarus lived. So let's turn back to uh, page 1079. We're looking at John chapter 12. John tells us this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, Martha was the sister of Lazarus, and so she is doing the serving. We're going to, we're going to meet another sister of Lazarus very soon. But this is where, this is the, this is the town that Lazarus lived in. And here's, and it, the Bible tells us that a dinner was being given for Jesus. My father-in-law was a, was, a, was a doctor. He was an OB doctor. He helped, he'd helped couples who were unable to conceive. He helped them have babies. His specialty was fertility. And so you can imagine that there were many former patients of my father-in-law who were very grateful because suddenly they were able to have children. And so they expressed their gratitude to my father-in-law by buying him and his family, including my wife, my family, his family, uh, meals. He would, they, they, would, they would receive uh, expensive gifts, and they also were given access to a very posh holiday one time. 
because my father-in-law had very grateful patience. And so you can imagine that this dinner is being given for Jesus because Lazarus and Martha, and we'll find out his, also their sister Mary, were very grateful for what Jesus had done for Lazarus. And so here we have this dinner, and now we meet Mary, verse 3. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here is Mary's act of gratitude. Here is what she wants to do to show Jesus that she honors him, that she's grateful for him. And this is an act of worship. She's recognizing that this man, there's something special about this man. And she takes perfume, and it's not just any perfume. It says expensive perfume. And she pours it on Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. And the Bible gives us a very interesting detail, doesn't it? It says the house was filled with the, with the fragrance of the perfume. I just want us to pause and imagine this whole room smelling like perfume. We, we have a children's Bible story book at home, and for a similar account, uh, it says the, ho- the house smelled like a field of lilies. Can you imagine being in that home? Can you imagine walking past that home? and smelling this wonderful scent of perfume. What a wonderful experience. But suddenly the good feelings are interrupted. And somebody speaks up. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, Jesus gives, John gives us a little bit more detail here, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We learned a little bit about Judas before he does what he does later on. He says, why would you do this to Jesus. What a waste. We could, have, we could have fed the poor. We could have given all this money to the poor. And it says it's worth a year's wages. For those of you who work full-time, I want you to just, just think about how much you make in a year. That's a lot of money. And so Judas is saying, what a waste. What a foolish thing to do to waste this on him. And what we know about Judas is that he doesn't believe. Judas doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Judas doesn't believe that he's the Son of God, the one that Jewish people had been waiting for. And so Judas says, what a waste. What a foolish thing to do. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 7, Let, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should sh- to save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will not always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
Sorry, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying is very profound here. He's saying, you have an opportunity to do something like this for me. You won't have an opportunity later. So do this now. Jesus is saying, I deserve this. Jesus is saying, this is appropriate. This kind of lavish act of devotion that Mary is showing. And Think about what Jesus is saying about himself. He's saying, you won't have the opportunity to do this for me later. And Jesus talks about his burial. He's talking about he's going to die soon. And yet, and he said, this is your opportunity. Your opportunity to show me your worship and your devotion. And so we have two responses to Jesus already. We have Mary, who is showing, her, showing him her devotion, her gratitude, her love. And we have Judas, who doesn't believe, and saying, what a waste. Why would you do this for him? We have some more responses to Jesus. Verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out Jesus was there and came not only because of him, because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus was drawing a crowd because he was the dead man that was raised back to life. And people were coming to see Jesus and Lazarus because they wanted to know more. They wanted to find out more. People were curious. And yet here's another group that responds to Jesus in a different way. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Remember, the chief priests were part of the group that was making conspiracy to have Jesus put to death. Remember, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is the one the Jewish people had been waiting for. And so here, the chief priests are saying, what a foolish thing to do. Why do you, why do you want to go see him? And on top of that, now they want to kill Lazarus. I want you to stop and think about how silly that sounds. Lazarus was dead. Jesus raised him. Jesus has the power to raise the dead. And they want to kill him, as if that's going to stop Jesus. Right? As if this is going to stop people from coming to Jesus. And so here, they are saying, what a foolish thing to do. What a foolish thing to do to follow Jesus, to find out about Jesus. Let's stop them. Let's stop this madness. And the very next day, there's more people who are responding to Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the festival of the Passover, um, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, Bethany was pretty close to Jerusalem, so Jesus was moving his way towards Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went down to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. These people are shouting, and they're recognizing Jesus. And this is their act of worship. They took palm branches. This is an act of honoring Jesus. And they shout. Let's, let's look at all the things that they shout. The first thing they shout is, Hosanna. Now, now Hosanna is a, is a Hebrew word, and it means save us. 
It means you're our Savior. It means we put our hope in you. You are worthy of our praise because you are our Savior. And in the Old Testament, the word Hosanna was used by the people for God and used by the people for their king. I'm going to say that again. In the Old Testament, the word Hosanna was used for God and their king. And so the people are using a word that's only reserved for God and a king for Jesus. And they're saying, you are our Savior. Save us. You are the one that we are praising. And then they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this combination is a, is a, is a quote from Psalm 118. You don't have to turn there. But there the psalmist is saying, God, you are our Savior. Save us, God. We worship you. You are worth our praise. And then the people add this. They said, blessed is the king of Israel. And they're shouting something very clear. They're saying, this is our king. This is our king. Caesar's not our king. This is our king. And so you can imagine, this is... This is, not a, this is not an insignificant declaration here. They're shouting something that is reserved for a king only. And so the people are, are making this loud, this loud declaration of who Jesus is. And in the previous scene, uh, our, our experience was defined by this scent, but now it's defined by this sound this loud sound of shouting, Hosanna, this is our king. And what does Jesus do? Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. You see, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Remember I said that there were prophecies about the Messiah. There were prophecies about this kingly figure who would come and, and be the rescuer for the people. This one is from Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9. You don't have to turn there because it's right here. This is the prophecy. That when the Messiah comes, he would be seated on a colt, a young donkey. The king would come, the king who's going to save us. He's going to come on a donkey. Jesus was very purposeful about this. And so what he's saying here is that they're shouting something appropriate about me when he's riding this donkey into the city and he's, and he's receiving these shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the king. And now we see what the disciple, how the disciples respond. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The disciples didn't get it. You see, they didn't have the whole picture. It was only after Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended back to the Father that they got it, that they understood what was going on. You see, they didn't have the whole picture at the time. But you know what? We have the whole picture. And disciples are not quite getting it. And here's another response to Jesus. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. They told people about Jesus. They told people what Jesus did. 
And then because of what they said, there were other people who were responding to Jesus too. Verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. They went out to see Jesus. They wanted to, they wanted to see who Jesus was. They wanted to see who this man everybody's been talking about is. And then another response, verse 19. So the, the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. Talking about Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees and the chief priests were the ones who got together and said, we want to kill Jesus. We want to, we, let's put this man to death because they didn't believe. They didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the one that was to come, the anointed one, the one that everyone had been waiting for to rescue them. They didn't believe that, the Pharisees. These Jewish leaders didn't believe this. And they were saying, you know what they're saying here? They're saying, what a foolish thing to do. These people are following after Jesus. They shouldn't be doing that. What a foolish thing to do. And so we have all these responses to Jesus. We have Mary. We have the crowd who's shouting Hosanna. We have the chief priests. We have the Pharisees. And we have Judas. And in between, we have people who are hearing about Jesus and trying to figure this out. And the disciples aren't figuring, don't, don't have the whole story either. And you know what? I don't think anyone in our passage has the whole picture. I don't think they completely understand. I don't even think Mary completely understands. But we have the whole picture. We have the whole picture. Not just in John, but the rest of the Bible, don't we? Of Jesus as the Messiah, the the, the anointed one, the one that the Jewish people had been waiting for, the one who's going to rescue his people from oppression. And what some people thought was that he was going to rescue them from the Roman Empire that was ruling them at the time. But Jesus had other things in mind. He was going to go to the cross and to die the death of a criminal. in order to take our place, in order to die for us and our sins. And he rose again on the third day. This is what John tells us. And all we have to do is to believe and place our trust in him and follow him. There's nothing we have to do to earn being with him. And we can have eternal life. We can have life in his name by believing him and following him. There's all these responses to Jesus in this passage. So Christ Church, let me ask you a question this morning. What is yours? What's your response to Jesus? Do you place your trust in him? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that the people have been waiting for, the one who would be our rescuer? Do you place your trust in him? Because if Jesus is not 
the one that they've been waiting for. If he's not the Messiah, if he's not the Son of God, then your response could be just like Judas or the Pharisees or the chief priests. What a waste. That's a foolish thing to do. You don't need to follow Jesus. And in the end, your response to Jesus would be just like your response to Marmite. It doesn't really make a difference. But if Jesus is the one, and John is teaching us this, and this is what we teach at this church, if Jesus is the one, and he's the one that we are to follow and to worship, then your response to Jesus is more important than anything you respond to. This is the most important question you would ask yourself. What is your response to Jesus? What is, the, what, what is the place of Jesus in your life? Because if you believe that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who deserves our worship, if you believe that he died, he rose again, and you follow him, then what does that mean for the decisions that you make? What does that mean for where you choose to live and what you choose to do with your life? What does that mean for what you watch on TV? What does it mean for how you spend your free time? What does it mean for what university you choose? What does Jesus being first in your life I mean, for all those decisions. Because there are going to be people who tell you, that's a foolish thing to do. What a foolish thing to do. Why would you spend all that time with that Bible study group? Or why would you give so much of your energy helping people? Or why would you give away so much of your money? What a foolish thing to do. There's always going to be people who have that response to Jesus. So let me ask you again, what is yours? What's your response to Jesus? Christ Church, I want us to think about what it'd be like if all of us responded to Jesus the way that Mary did, the way that the people who are shouting did. And what would that mean for the things that we do? How we use our time, how we use our energy. And some of you are about to make a decision. If Jesus is the Son of God, if he is the one sitting on the throne, how does that impact your decision? What would, be, what would, would it be like if we all chose to worship Jesus first with our decision-making? What would it be like if each of us, as a community, come together and say, hey, what does it mean for us to worship Jesus, to place Jesus first, to be loyal to him, to be following him in all the things that we do? Can you imagine the kind of impact we would have for God, not just here in Cambridge, but also in the United Kingdom, also in the world? Because what John is saying is that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And by believing, you have life in his name. And there's no better way to live.
I'm going to call up the band as, uh, as we get, um, as we have a special song this morning. Um, and I'm going, to pray, I'm going to pray in a minute, but I, I, want to, I want you to think about what your response to Jesus is. What kind of a response do you want to have to Jesus? And we see all these examples in this passage. Who do you want to be like in this passage? Jesus, this is really hard because there's no middle ground for this. We pray, Lord, that you would show us what it means to put you first. That you are the King, the Son of God, the one who rescues us. And you are worth all our worship. And when we shout, Hosanna, and we say that with our hearts, Lord, you'd be glorified. You'd be pleased. Lord, show us what it means to shout Hosanna in the things that we do, in the, in the, in the decisions that we make, in how we relate to our spouses, in how we spend time with our children, in how we study and work. And so this morning we with our hearts, say Hosanna. In your name we pray. Amen.